darlings, and welcome back to our story time. We are reading The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. You can also select to give a little extra through listener support which helps more than I can ever describe. And if you would like a little bit more horror during your week, make sure to check out my other channel, Asylum ASMR. You'll find the link in the description. And now on to our story time. Ichabod Crane would delight them equally with his anecdotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and portentous sights and sounds in the air, which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut, and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars, and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn round, and that they were half the time topsy-turvy. But if there was a pleasure in all of this, while snugly cuddling in the chimney corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood fire, and where, of course, no specter dared to show its face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards. What fearful shapes and shadows beset his path amidst the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night. With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window? How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow, which, like a sheeted specter, beset his very path? How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps? on the frosty crust beneath his feet, and dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close beneath him. And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast, howling among the trees, in the idea that it was the galloping Essien on one of his nightly scorings. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness, and though he had seen many specters in his time, and been more than once beset by Satan in divers shapes, in his lonely preambulations, yet daylight put an end to all these evils and he would have passed a pleasant life of it, in despite of the devil and all of his works, if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together, and that was a woman. Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening each week, to receive his instructions in psalmody 
was Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh eighteen, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting, and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed, not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. She was withal a little of a coquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions, as most suited to set off her charms. She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold, which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Sardom, the tempting stomacher of the olden time, and withal a provokingly short petticoat to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country road. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart towards the sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found favor in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Baltus Van Tassel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm. But within those, everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He satisfied with his wealth, but he was not proud of it. He piqued himself upon the hearty abundance, rather than the style in which he lived. His stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson, in one of those green, sheltered, fertile nooks in which the Dutch farmers are so fond of nestling. A great elm tree spread its broad branches over it, at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water, and a little well formed of a barrel, and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighboring brook that babbled along among alders and dwarf willows. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn that might have served for a church, every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The flail was busily resounding within it, from morning to night, swallows and martins skimmed, twittering about the eaves, and rows of pigeons, some with one eye turned up, as if watching the weather, some with their heads under their wings or buried in their bosoms, and others swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames, or enjoying the sunshine on the roof. Sleek, unwieldy porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pens, from whence sallied forth now and then troops of suckling pigs, as if to snuff the air. A stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond, convoying whole fleets of ducks. Regiments of turkeys were gobbling through the farmyard, and guinea fowls fretting about it like ill-tempered housewives, 
with their peevish, discontented cry. Before the barn door strutted the gallant cock, that pattern of a husband, a warrior and a fine gentleman, clapping his burnished wings and crowing in the pride and gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with his feet, and then generously calling his ever-hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured to himself every roasting pig running about with the pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese were swimming in their own gravy and the ducks pairing cozily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce. In the porkers he saw carved out of the future sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham. Not a turkey, but he beheld daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and peradventure a necklace of savory sausages. And even bright, Chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter, which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. As the enraptured Ichabod fancied all of this, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadow lands, the rich fields of wheat, of rye, of buckwheat, and Indian corn, and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit, which surrounded the warm tenement of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might be readily turned into cash, and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness. Nay, his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming Katrina with a whole family of children, mounted on the top of a wagon, loaded with household trumpery, with pots and kettles dangling beneath. And he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare, with a colt at her heels, setting out for Kentucky, Tennessee, or the Lord only knows where. When he entered the house, conquest of his heart was complete. It was one of those spacious farmhouses with high-ridged but lonely sloping roofs, built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers, the low projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front, capable of being closed up in bad weather. Under this were hung flails, harnesses, various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the sides for summer use, and a great spinning wheel at one end and a churn at the other showed the various uses to which the important porch 
might be devoted. From this piazza, the wandering Ichabod entered the hall, which formed the center of the mansion and the place of usual residence. Here rose a resplendent pewter ranged on a long dresser, dazzling his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool ready to be spun. In another, a quantity of Lindsay Woolsey just from the loom, ears of Indian corn, and strings of dried apples and peaches hanging in gay festoons along the walls, mingling with the god of red peppers. Then a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor, where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors, and irons, with their accompanying shovel and tongs, listened from their covert of asparagus tops. Mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece. Strings of various colored birds' eggs were suspended above it. A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room. In a corner covered, knowingly left open, displayed immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tessel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fell to the lot of a knight errant of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such easily conquered adversaries to contend with, and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass, and walls of adamant to the castle keep, where the lady of his heart was confined, all of which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a Christmas pie. And then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the contrary, had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette, beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments, and he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart, keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roastering blade of the name Abraham, or, according to the Dutch abbreviation, Bram van Brunt, the hero of the country round, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was a broad-shouldered and double-jointed man, with short curly black hair, and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance, having mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb, he had received the nickname of Brawn Bones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a tartar, 
he was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admired of no gainsay or appeal. He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill will in his composition, and with all his overbearing roughness, there was a strong dash of waggish good humor at bottom. He had three or four boon companions, who regarded him as their model, and at the head of whom he scoured the country attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around. In cold weather, he was distinguished by a fur cap, surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail. And when the folks at country gathered, decried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight, with whoop and halloo, like a troop of dawn Cossacks, and the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment until the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then they exclaim, Ay, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe admiration and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This rantable hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries, and though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, Yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is, his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his amours, insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on a Sunday night, the sure sign that his master was courting, or as it is termed, sparking within. All other suitors passed by in despair and carried the war into other quarters. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crame had to contend, and, considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supple jack, yielding but tough. Though he bent, he never broke. And though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it was away, jerk. He was as erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours any more than that stormy lover Achilles, 
Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner, under cover of his character of singing master. He made frequent visits at the farmhouse, not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. Bald Van Tassel was an easily indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better than his pipe, and like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for, as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house, replied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, Honest Balt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other end, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior who, armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter by his side of the spring under the great elm, or sauntering along in the twilight, an hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed in one. To me they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have been but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter. For a man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones, and from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Sunday night, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare and have settled their pretensions to the lady, according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners, the knight's errand of yore by single combat. But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones, that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse. But he was too wary to give him this opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brom no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic wagery in his disposition and to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. 
They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night, in spite of its formidable fastenings of wife and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy, so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. What was still more annoying, Brom took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival to Ichabod's, to instruct her in psalmody. In this way matters went on for some time, without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine, autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in a pensive mood, sat enthroned on a lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a ferule, that scepter of despotic power. The birch of justice reposed on three nails behind the throne, a constant terror to evildoers while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons, detected upon the persons of idle urchins, such as half-munched apples, pop-guns, whirligigs, fly-cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks. Apparently there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a black man in a tow cloth jacket and trousers, a round crowned fragment of a hat, like the cap of Mercury, and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt, which he managed with a rope by way of halter. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merry-making or quilting frolic to be held that evening in Minor Van Tassel's, and having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language, which a black man is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind. He dashed over the brook, and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission. And this, my darling, is all for today's story time. I hope that you are able to rest well, and that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night, my darling.